and welcome to another Champions League podcast from us here at Football Radar. I'm Adam White, French league analyst, and this week I'm joined by Portuguese expert and analyst Jamie Farr. Hello, Jamie. Hello. And also Belgian and Liverpool analyst George Not. Hello, George. Hey, Adam. Hi. Fantastic stuff. So, uh, so we're all on the same page, both here in the pod room and in pod land out there. Mm-hmm. I'll read for the results just to see, make sure everyone sort of knows what went on in this week's Champions League, the second round of group fixtures. So uh, on Tuesday, what, almost afternoon in the UK at least, with their 5-6 to six kickoff, Manchester City came from 1-0 down to beat Hoffenheim 2-1. David Silva with a 87th minute winner. Juventus beat Young Boys 3-0 at home. Pablo Dybala with a hat-trick. Manchester United drew 0-0 pretty terribly with Valencia. I watched that game. Um, AK Athens uh, came from 2-0 down to draw 2-0 with Benfica but lost after Semedo's 74th minute goal 3-2. Ruben Diaz was sent off there for Benfica. Bayern Munich and Ajax drew 1-0. Really good result for Ajax there. Uh, CSK Moscow early uh, Nikola Vlasic goal in the second minute beat Real Madrid 1-0 despite Igor Akinfeyev's 95th minute sending off. Roma smashed Victoria Pilsen 5-0. Leon uh, at, a, at a very quiet Parker well behind closed doors with 2 0 down Shakhtar Donetsk and came back to draw 2 all. Schalke won 1 0 at Lokomotiv Moscow. PSG absolutely destroyed Red Star Belgrade 6 1. It could have been 16 1, quite frankly. <laughs> Uh, I've never seen a more one-sided game, but we'll talk about that later on. I'm Porter. quite excited about that as a Liverpool fan with a double <laughs> header against Red Star coming up, having, be. uh, having watched that the, those it's, games. Because they got a draw against against Napoli, Napoli yeah. And yeah. then Napoli obviously beat Liverpool. I know. It's a, yeah, an interesting group. It's a really yeah. it's a really interesting group, but they were severely outclassed in that game. So I imagine Liverpool will be licking their lips at that. Uh, Porto beat Galatasaray 1-0. Atletico Madrid beat Club Bruges 3-1. Griezmann scoring twice there. Monaco's terrible season continues, currently in the relegation zone league in. Um, lost 3-0 at Dortmund. A uh, couple of goals from Lionel Messi beat Spurs at Wembley 4-2. Uh, Inter got a second comeback win, if you like, away at PSV Eindhoven. Mara Cardi again on the score sheet there. And as we just mentioned, Napoli beat Liverpool 1-0 with a Lorenzo Insigne 90th minute winner, George. I guess we can start there Yeah. as, as Liverpool fan and analyst. Uh, what did you think? Uh, it actually was not a good game of football. It, it really... W- Napoli, I think, did what they set out to do, which was primarily control Liverpool. I think there was a bit of a surprise in their lineup. They had uh, Maximovic, who I think is sort of nominally a centre-half, starting out at right-back. I think almost with the with the intention of almost kind of cutting in, uh, uh, kind of tucking in, and coming in to sort of a makeshift back three at times, almost to match up man for man with the Liverpool front three, with um, uh, I think it's Mario Ruiz that uh, the uh, is the Napoli left back. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's a really pacey guy. He was bombing forward all day long. So they kind of clearly said to him that you you can go up and down the left flank, mm-hmm. but the right back essentially plays as a right centre half. And lopsided almost. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, almost. Uh, and they actually did a did a really good job of containing Liverpool, who. Also had a had a bit of an off day themselves. I mean, Mo Salah. I know there's there's been kind of a lot of talk generally of late about his dip in form, and, and I was reluctant to buy into that narrative. Really, mm. he's been playing okay, just not really scoring the goals. But actually, he was pretty poor against Napoli. His touch mm. looked off on a on a bobbly pitch, which you know you certainly can't blame everything on on that bobbly pitch. But the conditions weren't great. It's raining a bit. Um, Credit to, to Liverpool's centre-halves, actually, Joe Gomez especially continues just to look really adept at this level. Uh, it's quite funny, 
having seen him previously, kind of over previous seasons, people saying, no, no, he's a right back as well. He plays right back. He's good at right back. And he's kind of okay at right back. And actually we've seen him play consistently in centre half this season. Mm. And there's just such a huge gulf between his ability to play centre back and right back. But I think Napoli deserve credit. They kept pushing at Liverpool. They were the better team. Uh, They deserved the three points, really. I think Liverpool would have been happy sort of clearly by the second half happy to hold on for a point uh, yeah, it's and, like group problems, as you mentioned. well yeah. I mean Napoli who two weeks ago were coming off the back of what was seen as a bad result away at Red Stars a goalless draw which might still prove to be a bad result but two games in they sit top of the group with Liverpool and PSG behind yeah I think I think it's I thought we were saying like in that group is the Europa League favourites, isn't it? Like someone is going to end up in Europa. Yes, yeah, yeah. To win that yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Um, I, I, with, with, firstly, we, I thought it was really interesting when you said that it's sort of almost being a three against three situation because that sounds really risky to me against Liverpool's pacey front three to have just almost play man for man. If one person gets in behind, you're always kind of you're always kind of in trouble. There's normally an extra player, isn't it, to cover when that's so it's really interesting that it worked. I think I think it was risky to an to an extent, and I don't know whether it was luck or tactics so much on Ancelotti's part as the fact that essentially when Liverpool play they normally play with a 4-3-3 but it's essentially I'd almost call it like a 2-3-4-1 at times where your full backs are so high up so as to almost be outside Mane and Salah who tuck in and you've got it's like kind of an inverted Christmas tree I think the issue with Liverpool going away to Napoli was this kind of subconscious thing that uh, a point uh, sort of not losing is more important than winning. Mm. And I think perhaps at the back of the minds of the fullbacks was kind of this thing where so often you'll see them play at Anfield and in games where we need to win and they're so high up the pitch and that's when defences have problems because you're getting an overlap. Whereas I feel that here, perhaps Robertson and Alexander-Arnold in the back of their mind were kind of going, it's more important not to concede. So I'm not going to take the gamble perhaps. Mm. And I think Napoli ended up most of the time matching the three-on-three. And I think a big blow as well was... uh, the injury to Naby Keita, who came off within 20 minutes. I mean, then bringing on Henderson, uh, and then it's kind of a midfield of Henderson, Milner and Wijnaldum. They're very good at games where Liverpool need to press and are looking to be aggressive, but perhaps away from home, they're maybe not going to give you that link between midfield and attack, which Keita may have done if he'd stayed on the pitch. Perhaps not the best at keeping the ball maybe navigator the addition of navigator means a bit more possession yes also what i want to get your thoughts on the salah situation because i feel like he looks a little bit i don't know if you agree with this Jamie, but he kind of looks a little bit uh, unsettled he looks sort of a bit down in, in, in the way he's playing isn't quite as exuberant as quite as joyful as it was last season he looks like he's sort of looking yeah down a little bit. i think so I, I haven't really watched liverpool much but um yeah, it's almost like he's sort of a bit emotionally drained. Yeah. Because, you know, there was all that sort of stuff in the World Cup where he was... Wasn't he essentially supposed to miss, like, the, the whole group stage? Yeah. And then came back, only missed one game, I think, in the end. And, and then, clearly looked below his usual level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause it, and as well, because although he was rushed back, it's like, you know, the, the nature of that injury means it shouldn't really be affecting him now. But mm. Which is why I think it's, like, mentally... And like I guess the the highs of such a like, insane uh, season as well, um, yeah. Maybe it's just all, yeah. It's just sort of taking getting it on top of him. Just and and yeah. I think um, I don't know if it was Klopp that said it, um, but I think 
probably what you know in some regards one of the most predictable things that would have happened this season is that he wouldn't have been able to match mm. last year because it was a bit of a freak year. So I don't know whether that's like you know maybe a pressure he's putting on himself to try and match last year and then you know you miss a few chances and you think right it's, it's the slump that people maybe are talking about and then that gets to you and then it all sort of multiplies. But um but yeah you made a good point about um you know everyone's so fickle about it that you know how you know a, a dip in form like that is just completely natural mm. and um yeah maybe it's just sort of letting things get on top of him a little bit because yeah there's something seems to be not quite yeah. not quite right I would agree yeah I think I would agree with you too Jamie and there does seem to be something beyond kind of a purely physical element where perhaps it is something mental I suppose maybe the only silver lining is because I, I think part of the part of the issue as well is that Mo Salah had such a good season last season that teams set up to neutralise him mm. and if you're committing men to Mo Salah then there's going to be space in other areas of the fields and Liverpool already I think 10 games into the season and into all competitions for Liverpool and we've scored four more goals than we had at this point last season so it's not like it's an issue really we kind of spaces will pop up elsewhere Uh, it just is kind of a bit of a shame to see him him sort of slump a little bit but how, is his, how does Salah's form individually compare? I don't know if, if you know off the top of your head, but it feels like he started this last season well, but not amazingly goals-wise, and it picked up. It was sort of around to the autumn, Christmas time, he yeah. really accelerated. So even like the start of last year, he wasn't... So he had, he had four goals at this stage last season, and he has three goals this okay. uh, this season. So it's not like a it's not a huge drop-off at all. I think mm. it's just a weight of expectation. Last season, he came in, and no one would have predicted the season that he was going to have, and he mm. was sort of just a... An, another member in Liverpool's front three if not even the fourth man in Liverpool's front three while Coutinho was still there mm. uh, yeah. and then sort of the fact that he was getting these goals was seen as bright and uh, there's just a totally different expectation on him this season uh, and three goals in 10 games I mean you extrapolate that out to assuming Liverpool probably going to play almost 60 games this season in all competitions mm. if you just follow that I mean that's a that's a kind of an 18 goal season that's not bad. Yeah, I think yeah. You're, you mentioned earlier as well that like, I think a lot of people the, the narrative thing. A lot of people are keen to sort of blow it out of proportion. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I think like you say, if he gets twenty goal, close to twenty goals from yeah. the wing, mm. he's done pretty well. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. as and long as the team of, plays well and they sort of at least get close to the their objectives, then no harm, no foul. Yeah. Like. yeah, agreed. One one quick word on on someone's form who has been. Perhaps beyond expectations, in James Milner. I know you're, uh, yes. you're a big fan of his. He's been how old is he now? Thirty-two. Fair enough. He's Which is well. astoundingly young for a man who seems like he's been yeah. around yeah. since the inception of football itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's yeah, he's really come to his own. He he did actually. I have to say, one of the first times really against Napoli, I've seen him look tired on the pitch. He kind of looked like that schedule might be might be getting to him. Um, yeah, he, he's been he's been a revelation. I mean, you can always count on him to to kind of cover kilometers on the field as he always does. But he's been creating chances, setting up chances, and you know, as much as Jordan Henderson is the captain, I think Milner is kind of as much the spiritual captain of Liverpool, and he is the vice captain, so he does actually have the armband on a lot of the time as well. But he's just such a leader in that team, and he's kind of Klopp's general on the field and. I think if you'd have said at the start of the season with the signings Liverpool made, you know, 
who's their midfield three going to be this season? You probably would have gone Fabinho, Keita and AN, other of the three, probably Henderson. Yeah. And it's actually James Milner and Gini Wijnaldum who have been Liverpool's two best midfielders this season. They're the two that the other guys can't seem to get out the team. So I think there's just maybe an element of, you know, they felt their places threatened and gone, hold on here, I got this team to a Champions League final last year. You're not dropping me out of it. Mm. It's a really good point. Indeed. It's, it's fantastic. It's great to see. Um, any any England recall? Probably not. For not James really Milner. Not really Gareth Southgate. It's kind of fast. No, nah, I imagine he'd probably... Probably up out the frame, close yeah. the close the door on that himself. Yeah. Probably well, part yeah. of the reason he's playing pretty well. He's got you know got a little bit more rest during international breaks, which is as we know is good for us all. Yes. Um, so true. looking at the rest of the group, um, just because we sort of mentioned it, you know, at the start of the pod, uh, PSG. We'll just go over that game very quickly. It was genuinely we we all watch a lot of football here at Radar Towers, and <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it was the most one sided game for Bayern ever. Really. Seen. Um, okay. the amount of chances they created, they missed. Four or five massive chances they should they really should be scoring, um, and I think there was sort of one meaningful attack really for for Red Star, which Marco Marin of Chelsea fame mm. uh, smashed in a, a consolation goal. At five, it was a five 0 I think at that point five one. Um, but I think there were two things to bring out. This one, um, Neymar was amazing. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, scored a hat trick. Um, could have had genuinely could have had five or six. Probably should have had five or six. Um, was the, the Neymar you expect him to be, which is which is great. Hmm. But then Adrian and Rabiot made a really interesting point last season when they played um, Real Madrid and lost, what, 3-1, the first leg at the Bernabeu. And a few weeks ago, they'd beaten Dijon 8-0 in a very similar way at the Parc de Prince. Team sitting in, nowhere near you know good enough to play um, play that style against PSG and get a result. They smashed them and Neymar got three or four, perhaps. And, and was unbelievable. And he said, you know, it's all very well being, we can score eight goals against Dijon, but this is where it really counts. And mm. that's kind of been the problem with PSG ever since QSI took over. So it was almost like QSI, the Champions League this season has been QSI in two games, encapsulated in, 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 in sort of two games worth of 880 minutes worth of football. Mm. Brilliant against teams that they are better than, even, even slightly, you know, because they have more of the ball, which suits them. Um, but when they have to, when they are challenged by by someone, even in Ligue 1, you know they they regularly lose away at Lyon. They've lost what two of the last three games away at Lyon. Mm. Um, they they struggle at Marseille. They, they should have lost there last year. Dan Stem and Cavani scored a last minute injury time free kick to equalise. Should have lost. And they they struggle in those games. And Marseille and Lyon aren't you know they're, they're bottom half Champions League teams if you like. They're not in the top sixteen. Mm. Maybe Lyon are Marseille aren't obviously because they're in Europa League this year. But even those sort of teams, as we saw against Liverpool, who are a very, very good team, they they should have lost by a lot more than they did. They were very lucky to get up to two all because they just can't handle that kind of that kind of pressing. So it was just it felt like it just felt like standard PSG. I was watching, it going, "This is great," but mm. no one really cares. A quick uh, question for you, Adam, on PSG, mm. sort of partly from a, a Belgian standpoint as well. I only really saw the highlights of the PSG uh, Belgrade game, but. Uh, a man who got one very nice assist mm. was Thomas Munier. And if I watched the Liverpool PSG game, he scored a very good goal there, has scored a few really nice goals. And I thought he was one of PSG's probably better players in that game. Do you think when Dani Alves returns from injury, do you think Munier now will kind of hold his place as the PSG first choice right back? I hope so. Because I think he's a really, really good player. Yeah, I've always really liked him when I've seen him. He's, and he's getting better at defending as well. Because when he turned up at PSG from Bruges, I think it was, wasn't Didn't it? have to do a lot of defending he, at Bruges. Yeah. <laughs> didn't have to do much at PSG either. But in these sorts of games, he's been one of those sort of stand-up players. Against Liverpool, I really felt like he held his own defensively. Yeah. 
Um, and you're right, he does score a lot of goals. Um, Alistair Gartenberg, formerly of this parish, sort of would like to have sort of famously brought up with me all the time that he'd scored a Champions League hat trick last, uh, uh, international hat trick last season. It was against Gibraltar, yeah. But he did do it. Wow. And, and got a hat trick of assists in that game as yeah. well, I seem to remember. So, you know, he's a very attacking fullback. He almost suits. A three-five-two. I was going to say, I mean, because that's he was impressive at the World Cup for Belgium, and that is his ideal role is that kind of the right wing back role that that Belgium play, which obviously isn't something that PSG play. But I suppose, given how attacking they are, you almost are a right midfielder at times, anyway. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. In terms of Danny Alves, I, Danny Alves has got quite a long knee injury from the World Cup, and he's not expected back for a little while yet. And He's 35 now. Mm. And there were times last season when he was really good and there were times last season when he looked 35. Right. And maybe it would be a little bit more sort of in and out, they sort of rotate and you'll see Munio play the better game, the, sort of the bigger games. But the only problem is you, you, there is a slight possibility that Daniel Ares could play on the other flank because they have Levin Gazawa who's been, been injured a lot recently, has a back injury, I think it's really sort of troubling him. He hasn't been in the squad at all this season, I don't think. Um, and it, and he's I don't know if Tuchel fancies him and they've signed Juan Bernat to play at the other yeah, sort of his, his understudy he's been terrible <laughs> he was terrible yeah he was Liverpool. not good against Liverpool that man. penalty game was so bad and, he, and he's continued to do it so maybe he's thinking that Alves could play left wing back or because Tuchel has switched in some games to a three at the back and I think that's what he wants to do and okay. it makes sense with PSG because you've got Kim Pembeto Silva and Marquinhos who in my opinion all three of those defenders maybe not Kim Pembe Less so, are exposed in a two-man defence. Thiago Silva's getting on a bit, he, and uh, as a separate issue, he lacks leadership, and that's been exposed a number of times. And Marquinhos uh, is suffering from the PSG effect in that he he's a very talented player, but isn't tested as much. I think that's the case. I, I made a case about this recently. That I think that's the case in Italy and Germany and France that Bayern, Juve, and PSG have basically the same problem. Yes. But Marquinhos yeah. is, is is suffering from from the fact that he hasn't really been stretched, and he makes silly mistakes when he shouldn't. So in a three, they've got maybe they've got a little bit more support for each other. So I think it suits them. Although Marquinhos has been playing in midfield, um, so there's a whole there's a whole issue around that. But he, they are moving towards wing backs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't necessarily worked so far. They tried against Angers. They were, it was one or half time. They switched back to, to four. And they they tried again against Nice last weekend, and they won three 0 very very well. So mm-hmm. it is progressing. So that's where they're going. So that would look quite good with those three if they end up playing there. Tio Kerr is coming from Schalke. He could play there too and play on those two wing backs. So I hope Mooney will play because he's, yeah. he's he's the best fullback at PSG by a long way. So for me, mm-hmm. um, so moving on to some of the uh, other groups, we'll start with with Porto, Jamie. Um, Serge Conceição, Serge Conch, Serge Conceição, <laughs> uh, coming in from Nantes, who was he was absolutely fantastic at Nantes, who were a complete mess without him. Yeah. Um, won the league last year with pretty much the same team. I seem to remember, like, but he. Because Porto had it the season before, they were a little bit off colour, and then he they they didn't sign too many players, but the Conceição effect won the league. Yeah, yeah, they they've had sort of uh, it was a bit of a transfer ban really, and mm. they only brought in one uh, backup keeper. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was quite impressive really in that regard because yeah, he he was brought in to improve the team. That he he had. He's good at that. He's yeah. Good at none. Yeah, I think he's just a really good like motivator, and you know he's a bit of a, you know he's he's sort of famously a bit of a disciplinarian, hmm. if that's the right word. Yeah, he is. He's like he teaches his kids. He's like a school teacher. Like a, he's really annoyed. He's he's like the kids have been you know he's been away on like some training day and they've missed around a supply teacher. And he's come back and he's absolutely livid about it. He's, he always treats them like 
like kids basically but it works like, yeah because yeah. well as a player I always remember him being sort of quite flamboyant mm. <laughs> you know like it's like the earrings and like the highlights in his hair and yeah. stuff like that so it's Gelled hair. so he's now like but he's gone sort of quite harsh in his um, older age but um, yeah he's done really well um, I think it's probably quite sought after now mm. um, he was actually um, I'm not he was a very strong tenant to get the PSG job for Tuckle did really so yeah which is uh, which, but he would have been good, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Europe-wise, you know, apart from the the Liverpool game last year, which was a you know, although it was five nil, it was a, you know not the no shame to lose to that Liverpool team because they're, they're massive favourites. But mm. he's done he's done well in uh, in uh, in Europe so far. Um, four points from the first two now. Um, there was a couple of nervy moments, but I think they played played quite well he against Galatasaray. One 0 of course. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was quite, quite, you know, quite a narrow margin in the end. But I think they, I think they played well, well enough to deserve to win it. Mm. Did you expect them to win this group with Schalke, Galatasaray, Lokomotiv Moscow top of the group as it stands? It's a pretty simple. For, for given Porto, how well they played last season, it looks like a simple-ish kind of group. Yeah, well, I think oddly enough, you know, in in many regards, it's it's a similar group to last year that they had in the sense that. Um, when the draw was made, I could see any of those teams finishing anywhere between first and fourth. Yeah, it's a really evenly balanced group on paper, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you know, the pot the pot one team that they got was was Lokomotiv, mm. which all due it's respect is what yeah. more everyone wanted yeah. um, to some extent. Benefiting from the fact that the top, so it's the top seedings were is the top eight seeds are now Champions League winner, Europa League winner, and, and the, the top, top six. six. Yeah, so, so England, France, Spain, Germany, Italy, Italy, and, and Russia. Russia. Yeah, so Russia overtook yeah because I think Portugal Holland were pre- Portugal. previously in that slot because mm. they lost a Champions League um, uh, position this year. Mm. Unfortunately for Sporting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they yeah they were they were all set to qualify for Champions League and on the last day and then they blew it, blew it in the last minute. But uh, anyway. Um, yeah, so it's it's, an, it's another really even group, um, which yeah, they definitely certainly after the start they made, they they should definitely have designs on winning it. Um, you know, uh, that's where they fell down last year and then ended up drawing a big team like Liverpool because they finished runners up in their group. Um, Who's it? Monaco, Leipzig, and uh, uh, Besiktas, oh. who I think surprised everyone and just basically ran away with that group. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't see, don't see why they they can't can't win the group. Really, it's uh, it's well, it's it's sort of nicely poised, I think. Looking at their their squad, because because I think with with Porto you, and Benfica as well, they they're very competitive European teams, but they also end up sort of developing a lot of talent. Is there anybody that stands out in that Porto squad, like the Hamas Rodriguez sort of style kind of player that might sort of because he was he was at there, he was at Porto, and then went to Monaco, obviously. Is it went straight to Monaco from there, and then yeah, yeah, and because they they sort of bring through those players. Is there anybody that you would highlight as a potential? Well, like a youth player. Yeah, well, like an up and coming player of, of any kind. Yeah, well, the the two I'd probably highlight. Um, one is youth player, a guy called Diogo Leite, who's um, uh, really highly highly rated and already been linked with like Liverpool and Dortmund, and um, he's actually just dropped out of the team recently, um, but he started the season really well. I think just got named. Um, like defender of the month 
in Liga Nos, they do position of the <laughs> month awards for some reason. Um, but the main reason he's dropped out is because of the uh, young Brazilian lad they signed called Eder Militao, who's been just brilliant since he arrived. Um, again, he was, I think he was described as like the, I think he came from, where did he come from? Santos? I can't remember, to be honest. Um, uh, Sao Paulo, I think. Mm. That might also be wrong. <laughs> but uh, he was described, I think he's only 20 or 21, and he was described as the, the best defender in Brazil. Mm. Um, and I spoke to um, some guys on Twitter, like Brazilian football experts, and they all say he's like, cause he can play right back and centre back. Uh, and they think he can be like long term successor to, to Danny Alves. Um, but Porto, he's been centre back, and yeah, he's been really good. Um, if he's if he's a sort of a right back centre back hybrid, is he sort of what sort of style of centre back is he? Sort of a ball playing, carries the ball out yeah. of defence, sort of. Yeah, well, he's he's yeah he's he's good on the ball, but yeah, he's very quick. Mm. That's something I've definitely noticed. Um, you know, he's you know quite quite wiry as well, but um, yeah, and the the other um, centre back they've got is uh, another Brazilian, uh, Felipe. So there's sort of been able to, and there's a lot of sort of South Americans in the squad anyway. Um, so they've sort of managed to develop a quick um, understanding, but um, yeah, he's 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 one that looks like um, you know all Porto fans know that eventually, <laughs> like, if someone's good enough, they're not going to be there for too much longer. And I can imagine he'll probably be the the latest in that long line to go for like, a pretty big fee, you know, yeah. not too distant future. What are their what are their league chances here? Do you expect them to win the league again? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, Benfica are a bit up and down still, even though um, they're sort of, uh, you know, nothing too disastrous yet. Um, Braga have started really well, actually. Um, oh, really? They're, they're actually outright leaders at the moment, but oh, wow. only by a point. But um, they look really good. And they don't have um, Europe this year. So... That's unusual, was it? Because they finished fourth last year, didn't they? Were they relatively yeah, they dropped. They dropped out the, uh, at the qualifiers. Ah, okay. uh, usually, Europa League uh, stalwarts. Yeah, Braga, yeah, they are. Yeah, in the group stages. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 yeah. You're right. They're, they're, they're always sort of there, and they always, you know, in recent years, they always finish top four um, minimum. Um, Do you think they've got a shot actually winning the league, Braga? I don't see why not. To be honest, I think to some extent. Benfica and Sporting are in a bit of flux. Um, you know, uh, Benfica's best striker is sort of very close to leaving. Uh, Jonas was very close to leaving in the summer. Mm. Um, I think he's 35 now. A lot of injury troubles. Um, I think he's got like a persistent uh, back problem. So, And, you know, his goal record over the past few years has been incredible. So... They're sort of transitioning in that regard. Sporting, there's all manner of crazy off-field stuff happening, and although they do have a talented side, which is sort of starting to gel together, but there's always. Jesus still their manager? No, no, he's he's gone to Saudi Arabia. Oh, is he? (laughs) Of course. Mihailovic, was he there? He was there for he was there for nine days. Really? (laughs) Um, How come? Yeah, uh, because he was. He was hired by the former club president, um, and then the president is where the source of all the crazy 
one of the sources of all the crazy uh, goings on goings on at the club yeah and then the president left and then I think it was kind of like because it was, he was the president's choice he left too and I think he was maybe on too high a wage or something like that um, but yeah it's it looks like it'll be the most open title race for a while um, but yeah I'd probably still say Porto the favourites at this point fantastic stuff um, talking about favourites for league titles I imagine Bruges are the favourites for the Belgian league title yeah they are mainly I mean in part due to the general kind of ineptitude of a number of other teams in the league right? <laughs> I think I, I did we, we mentioned Ali Gartenberg formerly of this pod and parish uh, earlier and we did a we did a, a Belgian pod at the start of the season I think I tipped Anderlecht to win the league and they just been absolutely terrible this season. <laughs> so yeah, I mean Bruges, Bruges and Genk took the favourites, but Bruges has been interested in them. So they played uh, on Wednesday night. They went away to Atletico Madrid and, and lost three one, and actually gave a really good account of themselves. Mm. It was the it was the Antoine Griezmann show. Basically, he scored two two of Atleti's three goals and was far far too good for Bruges. Uh, but it's kind of. It's interesting. They're in the Europe. They're in the Champions League. Sorry, two seasons ago, and they had. On paper, a group they were in a group with Porto, and it was Leicester mm. and Copenhagen. Oh, yeah. And Bruges came out of that group without a single point. They lost every single game, and they just they were a disgrace, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, a group like that, you've got to at least give yourself a chance of getting into the Europa League. Uh, and that was under their previous manager. They've since got a manager called Ivan Leko came in the start of last season. Mm-hmm. Uh, former Croatian international uh, footballer played loads of games in in Belgium as a player. Uh, he won the league with them last season. They're a very solid team, and he's very much stated his intent to take the Champions League seriously. And they are, but they're still not getting any points. They've got a tough group with Atletico, uh, Dortmund, and Monaco. Oof. They lost 1-0 at home to Dortmund to a late, completely kind of freak goal from Christian Pulisic just sort of bounced off his shin and went in. And that was a, a real blow for them because it looked like they'd been playing really well. Looked like they get point. Again, they went away to Atletico and it's kind of, you know, the Belgian media after the game and stuff are kind of uh, talking up the players who have played really well, a lot of them. But it's still not enough, really, at this level. Um Quick word as well, I don't know if either of you guys saw the Bruges goal, but it was an absolute screamer. I'd look it up after. There's uh, a guy who's my kind of player to watch Klaxon for the pod for the future. <laughs> nice. Um, Gruneveld. Absolutely. Uh, Arno Danjuma Gruneveld, who's a Dutch uh, kind of. He's a Dutch winger uh, who Bruges brought the start of the season from Dutch second tier side, uh, NEC Nijmegen. Hmm. Pronunciation could be off there. And he, he had a decent season from the second division. They're kind of one of the better teams in the second division, but mm. looked like a big step up. And then Bruges also started playing him at wing-back because Bruges played 3-5-2. And it's sort of the thing as you were talking about, Adam, with PSG, where if you play 3-5-2, because they're the best team in the league, really, they can afford to play a very attacking formation. So they essentially play wingers as full-backs, mm. which Dan Juma is. But actually, he's been really good even in the Champions League at full-back, and he's just... Very quick, very strong, big, got a rocket of a shot on him. Uh, he's got a lot of goals this season. He's just today being called up to the Dutch national squad for the first time. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he very much could be a player to watch for future. But check out his goal in that game because it is a rocket. I mean, Jan Oblak doesn't concede many goals <laughs> and he's fired yeah, this one good, past him. Good point, yeah. 
I, I think you were saying about Bruges not getting any points. I think they're about to get some points. Uh, against a team against called Monaco, Monaco yeah. Because we talked a little bit about it on the pod last time, but Monaco has sort of managed to plumb new debts of terrible <laughs> since that podcast. Um, like I said, they're in the relegations only league and... And Are they? Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, they've they they've just I, I, we did go into quite a lot of time, so I won't dwell on it too much. But basically, they've gone too far in their transfer policy, um, signing players that are teenager like prospects rather than up and coming players like sort of Thomas Lamar was like Golovin is the only example really this mm. summer. Well, they're, they're signing sort of teenagers and 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 it's just gone too far. And they don't they don't have the quality to to challenge in league. If they finished fourth in league, they would have done amazingly well. Sanetien and Ren are much better. Well, Ren hasn't started great either, but on paper they're much better. So yeah, I think Falcao also not not really firing on all cylinders. Uh, Jemison, centre back who played with Kamal Glick when they were in the league. Him, him in particular, I've never been a big fan of his, and I thought he was he got got a bit of a free ride that season, given how well they attacked. He didn't have much to do, and Kamal Glick's a very very good defender and sort of nurtured him, nurtured him through the season. And he's been exposed having put this season and last season having had more pressure put upon him by. A weaker, a weaker forward line that didn't press and, and attack so much. So yeah, they've got a load of issues. Unfortunately, they have Leonardo Jardim, who mm. who's done this every season, has made the best of whatever he's been given, yeah. and um, eventually figured it out. So they could well finish in like the top six and get a, a Europa League spot or something, which would, which would actually be pretty good. Um, but I don't, I can't remember how how much impact Bruges have had in, in European competition in Europa League before. But it might be a decent season for them to make a bit of a run if they do end up in Europa League. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, they they are. They're a good team. They're a very solid team. They 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 play with the back three, and they have four very good centre backs who vie for those positions. All uh, just very yeah, very strong level. Uh, kind of got uh, Matej Mitrovic, who I think is now starting for Croatia. Brandon Mekela, who's now in the Belgian senior squad. Mm. Uh, uh, they're, they're a strong team. I think that they'll definitely be targeting those games against Monaco's places to get points, and then either for a third place finish to go into the Europa League or if they can nick something at home against Atletico away at Dortmund to go through. But yeah, they're definitely giving a very good account of themselves and much better so than the last time they were in the Champions League. Fantastic stuff. So just we're, just, we're sort of uh, getting on towards the end of the podcast. So just just a quick round-up of the other games first. I wanted to touch on Leon because I also want to talk a little bit more about our leads as well, if we get the chance. Um, just a mention of Leon, who, who um, in a very sort of, not quite as bad as Monaco, but in a similar sort of way, have have managed to sort of fall off the wagon a little bit this season. They 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 were two 0 down at home to Shakhtar Donetsk, and this is leading to a broader point I want to make about about sort of French football. Um, in a game that was played behind closed doors, um, uh, they were, they end up drawing two. They played. I spoke to Andres, who who's also also a friend of the pod, of course, with my fellow league analyst. He said they only really played for sort of fifteen minutes. Um, they have this thing where they beat bigger teams, but they struggled against weaker teams, and it's become a bit ridiculous. So it's Bruno Genesi who took over. Hubert Fournier was manager. He got sacked halfway through the season, what, even three or four seasons ago now. And Genesio has had these marquee results. They smashed Monaco 6-1 on the last day of the season, two seasons ago, to get into Champions League. Um, they beat Manchester City recently, of course. Yeah. They've beaten PSG a couple of times. Um, they beat Marseille 4-1 a couple of weeks ago. And then they they sort of have silly little games like this where they, they should have lost. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they keep drawing at home, losing silly games at home in Ligue 1. Um, and they're just... They're a type of team that lost to Rons this season already. That you can, if you frustrate them, then they don't know what to do. But if they're playing against a team that that is more expansive against them, they are very good. Um, so, but anyway, the, the fact that it was played behind closed doors is they're the second French team to play a game behind closed doors 
this season in Europe. Marseille being the first, who they had lost at home to Eintracht Frankfurt. And it just sort of stands out to me after the events of the weekend, which we'll go on to in a second, that there are quite a few teams in France that seem to be struggling with, with sort of fan-related issues. The fans in France are genuinely, in terms of atmosphere, are really, really good. Mm-hmm. But um, as you mentioned previously on the part about PSG, have had issues with their fans too. They were banned from the part of the France after a very serious incident involving a, you know um, one of their own one of their own supporters who was who was very fortunately killed between in a in a in a in a brawl between two sets of PSG fans. They've only recently been allowed back in. Um, but as I said, both Marseille and Lyon have had issues. Saint-Étienne regularly have end closures because they uh, because they have cloud trouble. And at the weekend, there was Mar- uh, Montpellier against Nîmes, which was uh, the Languedoc, 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 Languedoc derby. <laughs> it's a very, very sort of, I can't really pronounce that. But uh, they haven't played in the league for 25 years. Nîmes got promoted. And they're a big, big rivals that kind of even forgotten about. They haven't played in any competition for 10 years. But there's still a fierce rivalry there. And in Montpellier Stadium, one end, the, uh, the, the Ultras have a big banner above one of their stands that sort of says their, their name. And um, it's sort of been their front of page for quite a long time. And... In, in quite comical fashion, the Neem fans stole it before the, before the game. Um, it disappeared during the week. And I, I'm, I don't, it was pretty obvious who had done it, but I don't think they, they really knew about it. And so the derby came, no banner. And they, they played Montpellier were fantastic, beaten 3-0. Um, Flora Molle was brilliant. But the, the, when they went through the lap, the banner then reappeared in the Neem end, <laughs> holding up. But it led to whole, it obviously led to, to some, some serious crowd trouble. Um, and... Um, and some very unsavoury incidents indeed. Um, and the game was stopped twice, once for nearly half an hour, once for 10 minutes in the first half, uh, when a, a little bit of a fence collapsed and some, play- and some fans fell onto the front of the pitch. And then, the, which was only uh, two people were injured, um, which, is, which is obviously very unfortunate too and very sad. I think they were both okay. There was a similar incident actually in Lille last season, uh, again, Amiens last season, where Lille fans, almost the same thing, like a crush at the front of the stand, the, the, it falls and there's a little bit of a drop down to the, Thing and thirty fans were injured there, so that was a bit more serious. Um, but um, and in the second half stoppage was because Montpellier fans tried to get to the Neem fans and the uh, right. Get the banner honest. back. Get the banner back. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. So I, I just wanted to I just wanted to highlight that I I, I obviously don't follow the other five follies. I follow them fairly closely, but not obviously not as closely as France. But it just it just struck me as that I don't see other countries, especially in England, which is obviously the one I'm exposed mm-hmm. to more. Um, and Germany and Italy, I know there are obviously fan issues in all of these countries, but it just stands out that France seems to be at the wrong end of the spectrum, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I mean, fan issues. Belgium, like this sort of you know, country I cover and follow the football in, culturally is large parts of it very similar to France, mm. borders France, uh, and the fans are certainly, um, you know, there's big support, especially with the big teams, uh, and they are. Uh, you know the expectations are very high for the big teams and because of it being a country where there are a lot of clubs in a small area there are naturally a lot of rivalries because there's a lot of teams that play teams from down the road fan trouble is an issue but not one really that I mean I very it's very very rare that it escalates to the scalars in France you know there's kind of at most, there'll be flares and that sort of thing, and and maybe you know a few unsavoury scenes of things being thrown onto the pitch and the like, and mm-hmm. it rarely extends beyond a kind of a ban, uh, not a ban, sorry, a uh, fine to the the, the club, uh, and uh, certainly in the time I've been watching Belgian football, unless I'm kind of missing anything, there haven't been many, if any, very severe events of the sort of the sort that you're talking about, and. Mm-hmm. 
never really seen anything to the extent where it's called for kind of a stadium ban or a game to be mm. behind closed doors, despite there being you know big rivalries and and you know sets of ultras in the country. I don't know what the case is in Portugal. Yeah, I mean it's there, there are some. There's been some issues. Um, a lot of the games, you know, the smaller games aren't particularly highly attended, which uh, you know often gives some games a bit more of a sort of placid mm. um, atmosphere. Um, but yeah, you know, like like in most countries, the the big rivals are you know really fiercely contested, and the fans go pretty nuts. But in general, it's usually it's not sort of you know. Particularly, obviously, too too bad. Doesn't usually go over the over the line. I've seen it on a few occasions over over the sort of four years or so I've been covering um, the league. Mm. But then you know the one instant you know I mentioned the Sporting's um, off-field dramas. Mm. The biggest instant you know of that was um, a group of uh, Sporting fan. Well, shouldn't really say fans. You know, shouldn't lump lump in together. You know, yeah. crazed. Uh, individuals, you know, broke into um, Sporting's training complex and attacked the players, which is uh, which is what led to um, that was the catalyst for. I don't know if you'd seen that um, a number of big players had sort of rescinded their contract, like Rui Patricio yeah. went to Bruno Wolves. Fernandez. Bruno Fernandes did, and he, yeah, yeah. So some of them, like Fernandes and, and Bastos, ended up coming back, um, and then others, um, yeah, like Patricio and. Um, Gelson uh, and and William Carvalho. Um but yeah, that was like uh, obviously a like completely unacceptable mm. um, event. Uh, you know, like Bastos was pictured like with um, like cuts to his head. Wow. Like it's a properly like yeah, gone gone from. Um, so that sort of aside, mm. it's sort of generally you know the right side of uh, volatile. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, like George says, I don't, I haven't really seen too much. Um, mm. I think, I think Benfica have got. They're going to have to play a match behind closed doors. Okay. Um, and I watched a cup game the other day, but um, uh, which was which behind closed doors. I think it's Passos, mm. but I think that was. Yeah, I think that was um, nothing too serious. It was only one match, mm. ordered, but. Um, yeah, it sounds like France is uh, sort of yeah. getting under a bit of a spell of it at the moment. I, I, th- I think you make a good point though that it was you, that to call them fans is a bit is a bit much. Like yeah, well, I'd seen a lot of that on Twitter, which I obviously completely agree with. That a lot, you know, it's a highly charged mm. um, instant, and uh, and sporting sporting's fan base is just as passionate as any others, and obviously lots of their fans were, were upset by the actions of. Of, of those um, individuals and like I say it's, I always think it's good to not lump lump them in with it because they're yeah. clearly not fans of the club yeah. Um, but yeah it's just uh, you know passions boiling because I, I should say I should qualify that with uh, France is amazing fans like yeah absolutely is, yeah. for me the best stadium in Europe they have the, the most vociferous loudest most you know keenest fans if you like in Marseille 
PSG fans are brilliant at Liverpool. And yeah, oh yeah, one of the best travelling supporters I've seen at Anfield for a long, long time. They're, yeah. they're great at that. Leon as well can be very, very good. Sanetian, they're one of the best in Europe as well in terms of atmospheres. Like they're brilliant. Nanta is an underrated one. They've got some really, really good fans. But they're just like little incidents that just have been sneaking in like this that have become a little more prevalent this season and, well, last sort of season and a half maybe. I just felt like it was worth mentioning because it was yeah. becoming a little bit silly. But mm. Anyway, we can, we can move on to round off the pod with... Um, couple of things sort of Premier League based I wanted to mention Man United um, uh, because I watched the, the game against Valencia and uh, it was obviously nil-nil and obviously the whole Mourinho situation which has been discussed which we probably haven't got enough time to go into here but I wanted to make a point about Manchester United's squad and how horribly unbalanced it is <laughs> like it, it's, it's it's not necessarily a, a, an original point of view but and it, it says a lot that Ed Woodward the, 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 the sort of sporting director I suppose he counts as sporting director chief executive um it has come under so much criticism because he's obviously in charge of signing players. He's obviously very, very good at the commercial side, but players not so much. And Marino, although he's under severe pressure, it, the blame from a lot of Manchester United fans has shift has been split over the two. And I think that's an unusual case, but it seems fair enough because when you go through the team, you think, yes, De Gea, great goalkeeper. But then you look at the centre backs, and Eric Bailly, no idea why we signed him, why Manchester United signed him originally because third choice at Villarreal was a bit out of the blue, 30 million, okay, seemed a bit odd. Chris, Chris Smalling, isn't in the England team because he, his passing is, is not good enough for Gareth Southgate. He's, he's a good defender, but maybe not the highest standard. Phil Jones is constantly injured, looks injured all the time <laughs> when he plays. And you're sort of running out of centre-backs. Lindelof was brilliant at Benfica, but it hasn't worked out. Yeah. Which is a real shame. Mm. So, you, don't, you know, there's such a big hole there. And then, you, and then we're playing with Valencia the other, the other, on, the other, on the other flank, who's a very good player and has had good spells in the past. But I, I honestly think he's defensively he's very exposed. He's still a winger playing at fullback. Yeah, so the, yeah. the whole defence is, is a complete mess. And then you, you move into midfield, and for me, Paul Pogba has one position, which is the left of the midfield three in 3-5-2. That's the only position you can play. And United don't play 3-5-2 very often, and whatever you say about his form and, and uh, his, his you know, motivation, that he hasn't played well outside that position much at all. He's very good at the World Cup for France, but he's got Angola Kante to do two yeah. people's jobs alongside yeah. him. So he was good, though, in, that, in the World Cup. He was brilliant. Like, mm. Yeah, 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 yeah but, I completely agree. And then if you look at the forward areas, which is the thing that annoys me the most, Rashford is a central striker, not a winger. All right, he's got the profile winger, he's fast and he's tricky, but he's a, he scores goals. Yeah. Anthony Martial is exactly the same thing. In play for Monaco, he's a central striker. He's, got, he's a sort of Thierry Henry style, sort of lanky kind of striker that, with that sort of finesse to him. He's not really a winger, although he, his profile says he could play there. He's, that's not his position. And mm. Lukaku... Um, is, it was a perfectly justified signing score, lots of Premier League goals, but that hasn't necessarily worked out either. I don't know, in bigger games, he goes a bit missing. So we've got these three players, perhaps, and Sanchez is a whole other thing, which is another big thing that hasn't mm. come off, But which is obviously you can't legislate for signings not coming off, though, yeah. Sanchez and Lukaku yeah. definitely made sense to sign them, mm. but you've got those, there's such an unbalance there. There aren't players to play, wing, there aren't wingers. There, there are four strikers, I Sanchez is probably a winger, but Martial and Rashford are strikers. And it just feels so unbalanced. Like Matter as well was, yep, he's a number 10 and he's always moved out to the wing because you don't have any wingers. And it's just, but there's it's, no joint thing. I mean, it strikes me from an outsider perspective, just there seems no game plan in terms of recruitment. There's mm. no sort What's of. What's the philosophy there? Like, again, I, I, I don't know, I sort of don't want to revert to using uh, kind of Liverpool as an example because I'm a Liverpool fan, but I think it probably does fit in this sense when you look at the recruitment of a club like Liverpool in recent years where it's quite clear what the system is mm. and it, when a player comes in it's quite clear where they play in that system and where what position they are targeting and, and uh, how they fit the style of play but there's just 
I suppose if there's no style of play, how do you recruit players to fit that style of play and formation? Yeah. But it's just kind of, yeah, just kind of looking at a player and kind of going like, oh, he was quite good. Mm. We'll, we'll buy him. Yeah. But I think like Fred, really... for example, but just, do you do you need that? There's other areas that need addressing far more urgently. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think because, and I think in that particularly relates to Sanchez, is that. You know, it, that's one of the biggest mysteries because everyone who knows anything about football, mm. no, he's far too good to be this bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's no real logical reason why he's playing this badly. Apart from that, the, the fact that maybe, you know, at least at Arsenal, for all their flaws and the manager's flaws, there was a plan in place. Mm. They played a certain way. Um, you know, maybe to the detriment of the team or whatever. But at least it was a way to play. So Sanchez, you know, sort of knew what he was doing and then he could use his sort of individual ability within that framework. Mm. There's no, there doesn't seem to be a plan. Like, mm. I'm not sure how... Um, it doesn't look like he knows what his job is, does it? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how United approach games. Mm. Um, I watched a bit of that Valencia game as well mm. and... It's almost like, you know, nil-nil felt quite inevitable. But, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure what sort of... It sounds a bit silly, but I'm not really sure what result they were going for. Mm. I didn't really, you know, because at times they sort of t- seemed to ease off and, you know, maybe think, OK, is a, maybe a draw is OK here. Mm. Whereas, sometimes as well. Yeah. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think there's a real, there, there, is, there is something going on... Uh, there's some, something fundamental needs to change because mm. the the level to what Ferguson built that club up to and the expectations on the club mm. like obviously it's to save his own skin but Mourinho's just sort of trying to dampen it and sort of suggest that this uh, as he said in his interview afterwards that they had a fantastic season last year because they finished second and uh, they lost a cup final I mean it's just for the for a club the size of Man United, who yeah. their reputation under the, in the Ferguson era was absolute ruthless, second is like complete defeat. Yeah, I mean it's just remarkable that his, that that's yeah. that's yeah. the the outlook. I mean, you know, I'm not a Man United fan, but like Man United should be, yeah, second place should be should be failure for them. Yeah, that's the size of the club and losing losing an FA Cup final to to to, to qualify that as a good season. It's just remarkable. I don't... Fantastic stuff. I think that's a, a good way to end, chaps. Um, so, uh, thanks very much for listening to the, our latest Champions League podcast from us at Football Radar here. Thank you very much, George. Cheers, Adam. Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you. Uh, and it's thanks for me. Uh, have a good week and enjoy the football. Do, do, do. Oh, what was the shame? I forgot what it was.